The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. And on today's podcast, we have really a brilliant man, someone who's come in and saved a lot of people a lot of headaches with his fantastic service, Content Safe. You can find all the information about Content Safe at contentsafe.co. But that's just a, a little bit of what we got into today. I mean, people who have a podcast or a YouTube channel and they don't want to risk losing it, you know, one night, one day, all your content on your channel can be lost. Well, guess what? Matt Raymer, my man, my friend, contentsafe.co, his company is here to help you. Here to help you back up your content so that if you are railing against the machine or if you are saying things that the big brothers or big daddies out there don't want us to be talking about, well, Matt Raymer's going to back that content up and make sure that, uh, yeah, well, it can get deleted from YouTube, but there's nothing stopping you from republishing it somewhere else because you have the files backed up. Now, for those who don't know, Matt is down in the Philippines. He's lived in the Philippines for the past uh, half of his life. He met his wife in the Philippines and decided to stay. And I found this conversation so fascinating. I've never been to that part of the world. I'd like to to visit one day. But yeah, the the extent of my travel is uh, I've been as far west as Denver and I've been as far south as D.C. I went to Florida when I was a kid, but I don't really count that because I was young and didn't really remember much and now since I've been about 20 uh, around 20 was when I went to Denver and now at 26 I've been to probably 10 or 12 different states 
but my global travel has really been nil. I've never left the country. So this conversation was especially fascinating for me. Uh, definitely inspiration to get out and fly and see another part of the world that I haven't seen before. But Matt and I talked about the inner workings of the Philippines. We talked about what COVID and the whole pandemic situation has been like in the Philippines. And then we got into uh, some really interesting waters, talking about the ancient city of Manila and the ancient forgotten history of the Philippines. And it is a very, very complex history. This is a place that has a lot of resources, has a lot of gold. People who are World War II uh, buffs, if you can even call yourself that, will remember that all that Japanese gold ended up in the Philippines. And people who know about history know that the Philippines has been, you know, quote unquote colonized for you know from several different countries and what you'll find from what Matt had to share is that you really cannot colonize the Filipino people and they're not just one people that's the other thing is this homogenized new world order idea that we all are, are one one type of people. No, we're all human beings, but we come in so many different varieties, shapes and sizes, and all of that beautiful, unique specialness that we all bring to the table blends together to make what it is to be human. And I think Matt elaborated on a part of the world that I've really only yet to experience. <laughs> Tara and I had a really cool um Filipino dish that she cooked up it after we talked to Matt um, and yeah it's just uh, on to the next journey from here folks who knows maybe I'll end up in Mexico who knows maybe I'll end up in the Philippines maybe I'll end up in Alaska maybe you'll end up exactly where you need to be. Enjoy this conversation with Matt Raymer. You're listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And please, if you like what you hear, go on over. Don't fear on the Patreon slash MFTIC. You can see what there is to be seen and all there is to be seen behind the scenes with our new project, Scene. Have I said seen enough times? Anyways, folks, I love you. Thank you for listening. Shout out to all of the great new faces on the Patreon. Our Patreon is growing, folks. Come on over. Gabby just joined in. We love you. Thanks for joining the family. To all our listeners across the globe, this one's for you. Enjoy this conversation with Matt Raymer. And please, again, go check out contentsafe.co. All right. Peace out, folks. You can become part of that Highland tribe just by being part of the community, being reliable, being liked by the community. You'll be considered part of the tribe. You're a Highlander because you were you know, accepted. That's a thing. It's it's not not a blood thing or necessarily a familial thing. 
So Filipinos are really accepting of outsiders, extraordinarily accepting. So Metro Manila looks big, but this ancient city was bigger than Metro Manila. It went all the way north of West Manila to south of Manila. And we don't know who built them. Down in south of Manila in Cavite, which they found the Chinese pots and porcelain that predate Spain. But apparently, Cavite was a trading port for the Chinese. They've also found in northern Luzon these, uh, I think they were made out of platinum, which is very unusual for something to be made out of platinum. And they said that these little, I don't know exactly what they called it, but it was, it was a little sculpture made out of platinum that the Chinese emperor would issue to every governor of every province. And they found one of these things in Northern Luzon, which means that at some point in the past, Northern Luzon was considered to be a Chinese colony. And even the people at Kasai Cyan Hunters who published the video said, this is earth shattering because if you could show that something was a Chinese colony, China is going to say they own it. That's really cool stuff uh, going on here. Uh, I like to call the Philippines Little America because it's it's a melting pot it really is it's always been a melting pot yeah since time immemorial yeah yeah absolutely one of the really fascinating things you mentioned was the uh the batanese they're the batanese people and how they have these really strange types of houses that resemble right celtic architecture at least the same kind of houses you would find in that part of the world so yeah no kidding it's a melting pot i mean people probably wouldn't guess that any irish people had been in the philippines before you know the spanish got there right right and you know that there are spanish journals that recount caucasians being present in north northeastern luzon which is just south of the Batanes that we're talking about. Wow. And do they yeah. have a and did you know, associated with that? That would have been shortly after Magellan, the early Spanish conquerors. Hmm. Let's see, Magellan was, we were just talking about this at breakfast the other day, what, what year? Magellan was 1521. And a lot of people don't understand how Magellan died. Magellan died doing one thing. Magellan died doing the one thing that a foreigner should never do in this country. Uh-oh. <laughs> Get involved in politics. Ah, yeah, okay. I mean, I've heard some bad things about the Duterte. Is that how you pronounce his name? You know, Duterte is just one more incarnation of a whole series of people Mm. that are similar. This place is run by a clan. I often say that the central government really doesn't control the country. And uh, we kind of have a debate between me and my friends. If you talk to someone, they'll never 
I can't use their names because they're officials in the government. You talk to them about central control, and they say, no, actually, there is no central control here. It's, it's mostly symbolic. But there is kind of this interplay, which is kind of cool, that we don't really have a state-based system. What we have are provinces, kind of like Canada. And at least on paper, those provinces are subject to the central government. But in reality, you have warlords or, or clans inside each province that have controlling interests. Mm. So, for instance, my wife's province, she's not native to our current location, but my wife's province, there's a certain family, we know their name, and their name is national. Even though they mainly have power in that region, their name is national. The Marcoses are a classic example of that. The Marcoses control northwestern Luzon. But they also have some interests because of Imelda down in the Visayas. But because of Ferdinand Marcos, that was northwestern Luzon. Right south of him is another guy by the name of Singson. And he controls that area. If you go over to the other side, I've forgotten the name of that guy. There's another guy that controls the other side of the island. And Manila is kind of like this confederation of different representatives from all of those groups. Mm. So the mountain people where, where I'm at are, they're very, they want to be autonomous, but officially they're not recognized as autonomous. But in reality, they're very autonomous. And if you were going to look for some of the most elite soldiers in the country, they come from those tribes. Mm. Because their history is headhunting. Yeah. Their ancestors were headhunters. So these guys are pretty, pretty drop-dead serious folk. And that's where you get into the Celtic influences. The Celts were headhunters. Wow. The people in northern Luzon, not all of them, but there are headhunters, or at least they were headhunters up here. The swords of Celts are very similar to the swords of the tribes up here. The ships. <laughs> well, I was going to point out, you know, from my martial arts training and the many different arts that I'm aware of because that was a really strong point of fascination for me when I was studying martial arts is what styles were around the world and how did they originate and what makes them unique in the Philippines. I mean, stick fighting is a screma is kind of like a dulled version of sword fighting, right? Because the idea is to not kill someone well, while you're practicing. <laughs> Well, it was, yeah, basically, and it was a way to kind of uh, disguise that you knew how to uh, use a, you knew how to use a bolo. Right. And both my, both my son and my nephew are, are screen up people. So wow. my, my, my nephew is more practical. He's the type that they learned how to do it in the provinces to actually kill people. But my son is more artistic. He, he knows how to do all the fancy tricks. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's definitely a flow and an art to it that's unlike, but, you know, that's what makes each martial arts unique is it's not just a fighting style. You see the culture of the area incorporated and even the spirituality of the area incorporated into the art. There's a particular Filipino in uh, Canada, I've forgotten his name. He was talking about indigenous dance and martial arts. And he was examining how the dance routines of some of these tribes imitate uh, hitting Spanish armor in its weak point. Mm. You know, while the Spanish were here, they never actually conquered the country. Because they you get into the interior, like say in, in a mountainous area or what used to be thick jungle, it's very hard to subjugate the country. And to this day, that, that goes back to that whole centralized, lack of centralized control, because it's not only the terrain, it's also the community, and which is another aspect of uh, warfare, is networks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So they were practicing... Mm-hmm. But it's interesting the the differences between the areas. I wonder if that plays into the martial arts styles as well. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. So there does seem to be a lot of commonality between the different uh, regions and how they fight. But again, I would go for the indigenous folk. Those guys, they know how to fight. Uh, not too far from where I'm at is the, the Fugao, uh tribe. And these guys, they make knives. That's one of their trades. And my attorney describes dealing with the Ifugao whenever they get angry at someone and how they how they murder people with their knives. Yeah. These guys, these guys are pretty serious folks. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's like anywhere, you know, I often, I grew up in Kentucky, Kentucky, Indiana area, and I knew that there were places that you shouldn't go to. Uh, you hear stories about people being found in the forest, their bodies found in the forest. So, yeah, I don't, I don't feel in danger here. I know the right people to stay out of trouble. Yeah, right on. So maybe we can get into that a little bit. What? got you to the Philippines from all the way out there in Kentucky? It's a mixture of things, but, you know, if you wanted to simplify it, it was my wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mainly that, that was the reason. Uh, I was a pen pal with her in the early 90s, and that was when I was in graduate school in physics. And I had an opportunity to visit her and some other friends from graduate school. And I took it and I proposed to her. I I had sworn I would not, but I did. And over the course of the year, finished my graduate work. Well, not quite. I almost finished my graduate work. Then I came back, I got married. Then I went back and finished my graduate work. And then I came back again. And I was supposed to migrate with her back to the U.S., but after a year of waiting for our her green card interview, we just decided we would stay. That's awesome. And that's 
the beginning of a long adventure. Yeah. I've often said, you know, I have no regrets uh, about the decision to stay here. It has been challenging, but, you know, challenges are what make life interesting, right? Matt, I love that. I love that story. I feel the love in the way you said that, and I'm sure your wife is beautiful, and that was a great decision to go there, man, because the Philippines is a beautiful place too. I mean, what a place to have an adventure, mm -hmm. you know? So It's so sure. exotic compared to Kentucky. I mean, I've been to Indiana, not Kentucky, and, and yeah, it's kind of plain. I mean, I prefer Connecticut over the Midwest, to be honest. I'm glad I, I grew up on the coast after seeing what the Midwest looks like. So I don't blame you for going out to the Philippines, not to slight any of our friends out in the Midwest. but <laughs> Well, you know, I, I was generally kind of dis heartened by Western culture back in the 90s. You could say I was an early culture war refugee. Mm. So I don't think I consciously knew that until I got much older. But yeah, I would the, say that that was part of it. What were some of the forces at play in that culture war? I mean, I definitely have always considered myself counterculture, so... I, 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 well, I would say that I, I grew up, you know, in my early teens and maybe even before my teens kind of very passionate about the sciences and very idealistic about the sciences and I got into the sciences. I I actually have a bachelor's in physics and computer science and math and I'm actually published in biophysics. I, I was participating in computational biophysics in my 20s. In fact, I was involved when I got out of physics, I was involved in the early computer graphics movements. We, I was involved in some early ray tracers for 3D rendering of images and scenery. There was a lot of cool stuff back then. We, we think all the cool stuff now, but actually all the cool stuff started back then. And I, what I encountered as I went through that was just how unidealistic the whole endeavor was and how uh, corrupted the sciences were. And that really disheartened me. I had a department head that was caught falsifying the exam, the student evaluations of the other professors. I won't mention any names, but yeah, he, he got, he was tenured. He had all like 80 papers to his name. He was very smart. And the politics within the department made him do something like that because they just didn't like one another. Yeah. So yeah, and I had my own advisor, undergraduate advisor, my research boss. I had him be scooped up and thrown out of the university with guys in black suits. <laughs> to find out later it was retribution from one of the other factions because he reported them for improper disposal of nuclear waste. Okay, okay, wow. So you could say that I was very disheartened by what I saw, and yeah. I, I just saw a lot of hypocrisy in the sciences, and I left. And, and you know, I was looking like whenever I met my wife, I was I was looking for someone who was tough enough to have an adventure with me, and I just generally felt that most of the women I met in the West were not tough enough to do that. <laughs> yeah. And my wife is definitely tough enough. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, after the intro to what, you know, the 
the culture of the Philippines looks like, at least in the way that, you know, the movers and shakers are rolling, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't blame her for being tough. It definitely sounds like the type of place where you got to stand up for yourself. Whereas out here, you know, we kind of have the uh, comfort or the illusion of safety, at least it seems. But, I mean, considering what we've just gone through with this uh, pandemic, as I like to call it, I mean, it, it sounds to me from the, you know, conversations we've had that, it's pretty locked down over there. Would you say that the government holds a heavy fist when it comes to this whole pandemic? Because in Connecticut, I've been able to express my rebellion pretty freely up to the point of, you know, not being able to wear or not being able to go into a grocery store without wearing a mask for some time. But that's just recently been lifted. So it's relatively to me, it's it's back to normal. Well, public expression is not the way that things work here. Mm. That, that's the one thing that I, I think a lot of Westerners don't understand. Mm. Yes, there is a lot of brutal suppression on social media. People are generally attacked if they uh, speak out against the administration. I do have friends, though, that speak out all the time, and they don't feel any repercussions. But again... It goes back to things being different here. Those people are connected. They have classmates or family members that are extremely powerful. So no one will really, you know, punish them because they're afraid of their connection. Yeah. As far as lockdowns, I would say the same thing that I said with Ricky on his show, that what you see in the news is not actually what's going on on the ground. Mm. Right. There's There are a lot of people following protocols here, but it's a lot of them that's half-hearted. The official protocol until last week, I've been told, but I never watched the news. I just look at what's in front of me. I don't watch the news. It's too deceptive. The official protocol was face shields and masks everywhere, including your home. <laughs> including your but home. But I only... <laughs> including your home yeah and i only know like one in a thousand that actually followed that yeah and if you go outside right if you go outside most of the people have the face shield flipped up okay it's not in front of their face and then another percentage of the people have the, the face mask underneath their chin yeah and not up here so there there's a lot of non-compliance but you're not going to see Filipinos go out and, you'll see some go out and protest, but you're not really going to see them protest verbally out loud. That's why I, I get a little frustrated at expats who migrate here, especially people who migrate here when they're older. See, I came here, I was still in my 20s. Uh, I've had a chance to kind of like grow up, grow up here. And I think I understand better than most expats how things work here. It's all very subtle. I've seen guys say, ah, you know, that they're going to put up with this forever and they're just going to roll over and take it. No, they're not rolling over and taking it. Yeah. They're not. Things here are about sabotage. That's how things work here. You're not going to see, it's just going to be things are going to break, they're going to stop working. You're not going to see outward rebellion. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I'm, so I'm not too worried about them. I love, I mean, the way you said that, we need to hit on that. Sabotage. Things here, 
are about sabotage. And, and it does feel like there is like a deceptive, almost pirate-like nature to the the way you're talking about the, the clans. And, you know, maybe this is just my fantastical thinking, but is there some truth there? Oh, that's the absolute truth. Let, let me... Let me, I don't know if I would say that this happens right now, but I know not too long ago, if someone was doing too many pickpocketings in the public market, you would see someone's disembodied hand hanging from a walkway. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That, yes, wow. Yeah. yeah, tied from a string hanging from the public walkway. It's like, stop picking pockets here. I've, I've seen an occasion where someone grabbed, snatched someone's cell phone and the whole street erupted whenever they identified who the guy was and he was like kicked to the ground and, you know, it didn't require any police so It was done just by the public. Now, what you're bringing to mind is, is sort of a decentralized landscape i really feel like where i'm at i would call it a megalopolis right i mean i'm smack dab in the middle of two of the biggest cities in in the united states right boston mass new york city and then we got philadelphia down there as well so there's a lot of energy that's urban but there's some you know more native indigenous natural energy that lies beneath but Given that potency of the land, you know, and the adventure that you've taken, what have you found in the sense of, like, maybe the folklore, anything you've uncovered? In well, you know, the, the most fascinating stuff is the, is the ancient things that have happened here that we don't, and, you know, you'll, follow, you'll see some Filipino academics that try to point this out. It's like the channel. These guys are pointing out how history has really been robbed from people here. There are ancient artifacts, gold, ornate, intricate gold necklaces that are like this thick around, solid gold, that they have found that are hundreds of years. They predate Spain. That's because the country has the second largest under the ground resources in gold mm. in, in, of any country. A lot of people don't know that. We're very rich in gold and silver and copper. Uh, but I think it's uh, the one economist, I've forgotten his name, conservative economist. I'll remember his name later. He points out that uh, the countries with the most resources in the ground tend to be the poorest. Well, yeah, and I mean, look at the history of the Philippines. I mean, what I've learned about it from my American, you know, education, the history is that, oh, well, you know, this place existed and Spanish came and they made it a, a part of the world, you know, and then, oh, then America went over mm -hmm. there and they colonized it. So it is sort of a, a colonized place and and yeah that tends to be the theme unfortunately and but i re i remember whenever i was researching before i came here to live and there was a old encyclopedia britannica mm. 
that uh, said something to the effect that the Catholics tried to subjugate the Filipino spiritual spiritualism for four, for four, nearly 400 years, and what they ended up with was that the Filipinos co-opted Catholicism. <laughs> and I think that there is some truth to that, that uh, native practices overwhelm anything that comes in from mm. the outside. Yeah. So, you know, things like law, well, law has to adapt to the way things work here, and not vice versa. Right. And that I don't want to paint too much of a, a anarchial utopia picture because we got our issues. Yeah. We, we got people who conform just like anyone anywhere else. Right. And it's a shame that with the you know the savvy and all of that that we're seeing people that they should know better, but they went ahead and done it. And I I don't know. Mixed feelings there. I, I hope that there aren't any ill consequences to them, but I'm concerned that there will be. Hmm. Right. And see, that's the concern. One of the concerns I have here about that issue is that if enough people become convicted that they were fooled, oh boy, that's going to get bloody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that will get bloody. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so many things are coming to mind. I hope that doesn't happen, but you know, the uh, yeah, the the you know, the point about gold and resources and it being a very interesting place to these uh, European nations at that time in history. I mean, the name Philippines itself like uh, my guess is that comes from a European word. Maybe King, I'm wrong. Right. So what would what would the people uh, there, I mean, obviously it's an island chain, so there's many different clans, like you said, but is there, was there a common people in that? Yeah, exactly. So now this homogenization has taken place there where, oh, well, they're all Philippines when in reality, like you said, they're clans, provinces, and each has their own sort of subculture that's unique to the, to the area. Well, what's interesting to me is that the whole idea of geneticnicity is foreign. Mm. From my perception, okay, it's foreign to hear. Let's say that you're from the mountains, or let's say that you were born in near the ocean in the lowlands, and you, for some reason, found yourself in the highlands. Maybe you married a highlander or you just migrated up there for, for trade or something like that. Well, you can become part of that Highland tribe just by being part of the community, being reliable, being liked by the community. You'll be considered part of the tribe. You're a Highlander because you were, you know, accepted. That's a thing. It's it's not not a blood thing or necessarily a familial thing. So Filipinos are really accepting of outsiders. Extraordinarily accepting. But I have, I will make one caveat there. For the first six months to say a year, people will bend over backwards to be accommodating and nice to you. But once they begin to accept you as part of the community, that's whenever they stop being so nice. <laughs> so they can be very brutal. Yeah, they can be very frank, very brutal in their comments and. Uh, a typical thing is 
you're an expat, you try to learn Tagalog or Ilocano, well, either they'll tell you, you don't need to learn that because I can speak English, right? Or they will mock you whenever you have bad pronunciation. And that's just a very Filipino trait. They'll just mock you and make fun of you for mispronouncing words. Yeah. I, I For whatever <laughs> reason, that really resonates with me. I think... You know, maybe it's a New England type thing, but we're ball busters. You know, when you get to know someone around here and you like someone, you start to you pick on them a little bit. And it's out of love because there's always room for improvement. At least that's the philosophy that I've gained. I don't know if everyone sees it that way, but it is very instinctual, at least growing up around here, to have that. That's and that's, that's that is the unfortunate thing if you, if you get too sensitive. And uh, this is one of my problems with at least the current Western uh, society is it's become, in some circles, too sensitive. You can't say anything. You can't tell a joke. You can't, you know, nobody has any wherewithal or, or tolerance to handle that. Yeah. Yeah. I, man, I remember it, it, as a kid in elementary my classmates were cruel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, same here. And, I mean, I, I had the sort of obvious uh, contrast when I went from being kind of in a blue-collar suburb but on the water, so not totally blue-collar, but mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely blue-collar. And then I go and work in New Haven, go to school in New Haven where Yale University is, this very prestigious place, and that's exactly what I noticed mm-hmm. is these people just didn't have the same sense of humor I did, and it was a little off-putting in the sense of like, oh, yeah, they, they're taking themselves very seriously. And the more I learned about conspiracy and all of these sorts of truths about what Yale University is and was and how it started, it, it started to really make me feel a little uh, passionate and upset to kind of shove it in their face and be like, well, how smart are you? Because, you know, what you're doing is just contributing to this massive drug trade. And I don't know how much of them are aware of that. But I mean, you go walk around the city of New Haven and the biggest building uh, that isn't a bank building is a pharmaceutical company. And, and then every other large building is a hospital f- for the university. So that you can see it's very obvious where the money is is in New Haven, and they tore down the well, Coliseum. It's kind of like a, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's kind of like while we were preparing breakfast this morning, I was listening to Jimmy Dore, mm. and he was talking about a speech from Biden in which he was criticizing Russia for getting involved in elections, and Biden said, imagine if the United States got involved in some other country's election. And Dora's like, wait a minute, we admit that we've been involved in like hundreds of incidents, including assassination of people. Yeah. This is another thing that drove me crazy about the West is that I was like, no, you know, that's not right. I don't want to be a party to that. That That's terrible. Right. Uh, the things we've done and, you know, the... I do recognize that if it were another culture that got in the same position, they would probably do the same thing. I think humans are pretty much the same everywhere. But I've always had a thing for the underdog. I don't like bullies. I agree with you there.
Yeah, for sure. I think I think it is interesting. I I don't know if I could leave America. I do have a, a sense of awe for the magic of the land, and I think there is uh, still room for for improvement everywhere. But oh, you know, for sure. in the in the light of of the magic of the land, I mean, I really am interested to hear more about the Philippines as much as you've gathered about, you know, that maybe the ancient history, one guest that we just had on the show, Ari Asselin, he's really, you know, out there. He's got some awesome theories that I don't think most people have heard mm-hmm. about, but they're concerning like, you know, mud flood and he's connecting a lot of the stuff from the electric universe and the Tartaria stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things he mentioned was like, there was this electric, very strong electromagnetic weapon like lightning that was used to destroy islands. And what came to mind were all these broken up island chains. You know, we have them in the Philippines where apparently, you know, to, according to some books that I've read, a, a place that used to be known as Lumuria, right? It existed maybe when the ocean was uh, significantly lower. And then also you see the same thing in, you know, the Bermuda area with all these broken up islands. Well, the, the thing to remember about here is that there's this impression that the cultures pre-Spain were very primitive, and they weren't. Right. They were quite sophisticated cultures. Culturally, I think that, well, I don't necessarily think I like some of the practices of the ancient cultures, but I won't get into that today. The other thing to remember it or to know is that the, recently they found these places they call the Black Sands, and there are these little wall structures around Manila Bay. They appear to be ancient seawalls. And the extent of this goes on to the land where they find canals. This is a megacity bigger than Manila. Metro Manila, right? So Metro Manila looks big, but this ancient city was bigger than Metro Manila. It went all the way north of West Manila to south of Manila. And we don't know who built them. Wow. How much do we know yeah, about it, the, the seawalls? Is there any information about what they're made of or, or the any size measurements that have been done? It's... What's been done has been by these academics. They're not the official state organs, right? They're not the University of the Philippines, but they do cooperate with the University of the Philippines to try to confirm what they're looking at. And there are no Spanish journals about these structures. And they ran across them accidentally because one of the people had a class that they were teaching And his student said that she was coming from Manila Bay. And he said, how could you possibly be living in Manila Bay? And she said, oh, our barrio is at the edge of the ocean in Manila Bay. He's like, really? Can you show me? And she took him out there, and they drone flew over the area, and there are old churches and homes. And they're on these artificial, not naturally occurring islands, and it looks like it was a seawall. 
And then further research showed the canals in Bulacan, which is north of Manila. And you've got things down in south of Manila in Cavite, which they found Chinese pots and porcelain that predate Spain. Wow. So apparently Cavite was a trading port for the Chinese. They also found in northern Luzon these, uh, I think they were made out of platinum, which is very unusual for something to be made out of platinum. And they said that these little, I don't know exactly what they called it, but it was, it was a little sculpture made out of platinum that the Chinese emperor would issue to every governor of every province. And they found one of these things in northern Luzon, which means that at some point in the past, northern Luzon was considered to be a Chinese colony. Wow. And even the people at Kasai Cyan Hunters who published the video said, this is earth-shattering because if you could show that something was a Chinese colony, China is going to say they own it. Right. Right. Well, China, if you're listening, you didn't hear from us. <laughs> yeah, well, you did. we weren't the first ones to say it. it. It's out there. But, the you know, Batanias that we talked about earlier is worth commenting on. The Celtic connection is, wow, it's amazing. As I've already said, there's the connection of headhunting, which, you know, if you took that by itself, it wouldn't really be all that much. But you pile on top of that, the similarity of sword making and the similarity of boat making. In Batanes, the boat style is different than the rest of the country. The rest of the country uses the type of pontoon boat, you know, with the balancing arms on the boat. Right. Whereas the boat style in uh, Batanes is a classic Celtic boat shape. The graves are shaped like boats, which the, none of the graves in the rest of the country are shaped like that. Lodge houses are shaped like Celtic lodge houses. They don't, there's no similarity to the architecture of the rest of the country. You just pile these things on top of one another and you kind of come to the conclusion that it's reasonable to think that there's some sort of Celtic influence. Yeah which then tells you that there is there was a lot of international or global scale travel and commerce in the ancient world, more than we think. And I'll add you one that's not related to the Philippines is the Caucasians of northern Japan. All right, yeah, tell me more about that. That's right. new. They, they're no longer a tribe, but every, almost every Japanese can find some DNA within them that traces back to this tribe. And the tribe, they were all white. They were northern China, uh, northern Japan. I've forgotten the name of the tribe, but uh, it, it's a thing. You talk to the Japanese and they know about it. So what you had was a perhaps Celtic, Maybe origin. Wow. So, and if you think about the oldest skeleton found in North America, human remains. 
it's actually a uh, location. Yeah. What and can you elaborate on that? Because I was unaware of that. See, that's a very controversial finding because it kind of undercuts the idea that the Asiatics were the first people in North America. Right. This was found out, I think, back in the 80s. I, I've forgotten the exact location where it was found, but the, the skeletal remains were definitely Caucasian. They were not Asiatic. Now, that said, I, I'm not an ethno-nationalist. I, I obviously don't have any convictions along that way, and I, I'm not an ethno-superiorist either. I, I think that I'm very skeptical about demographic data on intelligence, and I'm very skeptical about the measure of intelligence itself anyway. It's just that, that it, it is, to me, more indicative that the world is much more complicated and that the ancient world was much more mixed than we give it credit. And maybe perhaps this whole idea of blood segregation or genetic segregation is an innovation and it does not have an end. You know, it's not really established in antiquity. I don't think people have always thought that way. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, yeah, you're, you're definitely speaking my language. I'm someone who believes that, you know, the universality of certain archetypes within all cultures shows us that you know there's definitely a conscious link i don't think that consciousness is measured by physical definitions of whatever body it's in you know i think that depending on the landscape that the person or human evolves to you know that determines the nature of their intelligence and you know somebody from paris gets plucked out of Paris and dropped in the middle of, you know, western deserts of the, you know, China, they're not going to be able to survive, you know, but that Mongolian horse rider who's over in the Gobi Desert all the time and, you know, he can survive there, but you take him and you pluck him and you put him in Paris, you know, he's probably going to have a hard time figuring things out. Maybe he'll not die like the guy that got plucked in the desert, but he'll probably be left with, uh, you know, a a feeling of existential dread that most people (laughs) in the West seem to be uh, cultivating. But, you know, some people people can adapt. I remember a story about an Australian Aborigines that was brought to Britain. And he adapted, got a degree from Oxford. And well, yeah, no, and I, and I'm really my point is like intelligence. You know, it's not defined by you know who you are. It's defined by how it's applied. You know, and and our environment is where we apply our apply our intelligence. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's something also to be said about the plasticity of intelligence, the ability to adapt. This is something I think that sorely missing in the West is the ability to to adapt to changing environments. Whereas maybe other places, people have to adapt to changing environments. I remember a Swiss friend of mine that has been here longer than me. He's been here almost 40 years. He said that he left Switzerland because everything was predictable in Switzerland. 
He said, it's like clockwork. He said, it's like a Swiss clock. He said, everything happens whenever it's supposed to happen, and there are no surprises. And here, he said, I, it's never boring. He said, it's like there's something new every day, and things don't ever go according to plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and isn't that how life happens, you know? Well, I think that that's part of what was so disruptive about the last year and a half for some people was that they were accustomed to regularity and that things happened when they were supposed to happen and things were predictable and you suddenly got thrown into a completely unpredictable mess and there were certain people who just couldn't cope with that. Yeah, I I was not one of them. I, I definitely feel me like, too. you know, that benefited me in some way and I don't mean to boast about it and make, you know, make fun out of other people's misery, but it definitely was an opportunity for those who seized it. Well, I've heard it said more than once that they were say, you know, I'm thank thank goodness for COVID. Uh, <laughs> that well opportunities emerged and I know that that's that's unfair because there were quite a few people that it wasn't a blessing for them. But maybe it goes back to that plasticity thing. Mm. Maybe well, I've often said here, by and large, the people who suffered here were the ones who complied. Mm. And I think it's the same everywhere, though I can only speak for here. Now, one thing, <laughs> one thing, I, one thing I really wanted to ask you, because this would be a really great, you know, examination of it from a better perspective something that I felt, something that my girlfriend had felt before COVID is this sense of like uplifting of the consciousness. Like things were lining up in a way. And then it was like almost like the crown chakra was opening. And then all of a sudden the Corona, the crown virus hits us <laughs> and things got, you know, another swell of fear came in. But on that spiritual, intuitive level, do you think that there was uh, that, would you say you felt something like that in the air pre-COVID? Sure. Maybe for a few years. Because, you know, for me, I, I would say, and we talked about this, I believe, in our other calls together, that I, I knew that I had been given a certain level of awareness of how the world worked, even starting out fairly early in my life. But I was pretty much a normie until my late 30s. Even though I was aware of these things, I was like on the fence. But since 2010, it's just been each year accelerating that my awareness just keeps getting wider and wider to the point where you can look at a situation and you can say, I think I know the trick in this situation. Whereas before, you would say, well, it, it, it's just what they said it was. No, no, I, I, I can't look at things that way anymore. I look at things from the standpoint of, no, no, there's a trick here somewhere. And then you just pick through it and you find, oh, that's what the trick is. And in the age of Aquarius, once we've left the age of duality, the Pisces, you know, Aquarius is the water bearer. When you pour water over something it clarifies it you know with every pore the more 
dirt is sifted out and you see, you know, a clearer picture every time. That's at least what comes to mind when I think of the Aquarian energy, and that's what they said was happening in the 60s, way before I was born. But I definitely feel mm -hmm. like whatever happened in that period, 2010, for me, not so much. Maybe that was around the time I started smoking weed, but I was also in uh, high school. So it's like, you know, I, I think I was a uh, sophomore, yeah, sophomore year, 2010. And uh, but by mm -hmm. 2012, the year I graduated, I had definitely, you know, I wasn't the average student per se, you know, my interest, but yeah, I was definitely opening myself up to this. And I, I think it wasn't by accident. I think that there was this wave that I kind of took part in. If you look at my, my own family, as I alluded to just a moment ago, what I believe opened the eyes of my parents, my parents were very late World War II generation. For example, my father was drafted into World War II and was on a ship headed to, to the Pacific and they dropped the bombs on Japan. So he was like right there ready to go island hopping and the war ended essentially. And, and he ended up in South Korea cleaning up South Korea from Japanese control. Well, this is a person who grew up in what they call the greatest generation, right? He, he came out of World War II. He was still in his 20s whenever he came out. He went through that industrial boom where the U.S. was the only manufacturing power in the world, much like China seems to be now. That's why I often call it World War COVID. And then he started raising a family. And his eldest son, my, my brother, volunteered to go to Vietnam. Now that's how normie they were. My dad begged him to just go to Canada. But he, in good conscience, said he couldn't because he had friends dying in Vietnam. So he went and he died. Now that was an eye-opener for my parents. That's the first person who ever told me anything anti-establishment was my dad. And I still think that it was because of my brother. So that's the Aquarian age that you're talking about there, right? <laughs> it took a war to open his eyes, right? And for us, you know, it was a little gentler for us. I think that the budding of social media and these video platforms were like opened a lot of people's eyes. And to be honest, if you look at the current vaccination rates in the world, uh, they're not getting vaccinated at the rate that I think they had planned. Right. Which is hope. Yeah. I, I, that gives me hope. I mean, one of my friends that I podcast with often and, and talk to often, he makes these on-the-street videos where he just goes around and asks people in Dallas if they have gotten the vaccine. And, I mean, it's really like one or two out of ten people in his videos will say they've gotten it. But, yeah, for the most part, people kind of giddy grin and, like, say no, you know. And and it's, it's entertaining now, I think. I don't know. Maybe that's just mm -hmm. like a small little picture of it. But, Matt, you're... Right. Go ahead. Well, even here, the ones that are just jump at it are the people who are above 70. 
they jump at it because they've got this perception of the world that's that I think is flawed. Yeah. And they trust health officials. They trust that no, they're never going to do anything that's going to hurt us. Well, that means you don't understand history very well. Yeah. And I've often said that this is not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of faith. What do you have faith in? If you have faith in government, then you're probably going to get hurt in this situation. Yeah. No, I mean, maybe when you said the anti-establishment comment, it brought to mind, you know, the times I've been, you know, really, there's really no point in my life where I've been, like, faced with uh, adversity from the government, you know, even getting pulled over and having weed on me, I was, it was always very like, oh yeah, no big deal, you know, maybe that was just the, you know, happenstance of it, but the anti-establishment for me really came from like seeing what was going on in the world and, and wanting to, to make a change and something you just touched on that I think is interesting and you have a a lot of experience in this area is how the internet has opened a lot of people's eyes to so much and I, that's part of my generation's upbringing i think that's where you know even though there's a lot of deception and programming going on yeah. in those realms i was fortunate enough to kind of exist on the internet in this time where social media didn't exist yet so you know it was kind of the free internet and there were all kinds of weird sites you can find and lots of great information from other genuine people and so i found a lot of really interesting information that led me to gather all these books because i quickly saw how fast some of those websites that had that great information were getting censored so i'm like well a book can't get censored if i own it you know so i started (laughs) buying books but i would even go and print things out in the high school library that I thought were significant enough to keep like that anarchy. I have a, I have a table in my uh, office. It was originally intended to be a coffee bar and I never got around to finishing the coffee bar and it's stacked two feet high with printouts of things that I don't want to lose. <laughs> oh yeah. And you were saying earlier about your generation. Now, I had a, I had a very, I feel blessed to have the life I've had. And, and I cannot, you know, like you said earlier, there's certain things about my life that I just, I'm glad I was born. My decision to leave was out of the sense of idealism of the way I think things should be and how I wanted to have a family. But I don't have, I, you know, the biggest student loan I had was $5,000. Everything else was scholarships, grants, uh, work study. I I got paid to get educated, so I, I was grateful for that. In my graduate work, 1990, what if it's probably 1993, 1994, maybe? Maybe as late as 95. I was sitting in a advanced database design class. Because what I one of my other specialties was database design, not database like administration, but we actually built database systems as part of the class. And the professor came in, and our school had a National Science Foundation grant to get the internet in like '95. 
And he came in one day and he just looked at us and he said, this internet can't stay open. They're going to have to censor it. <laughs> 95. Yeah. Wow. And I remember thinking at the time, no, we shouldn't. And I knew what the internet was like early on. It was, as I, I would say back then, 15% treasure, 85% garbage. Yeah, well, there was a fair amount of sifting you had to do. I remember my favorite website was StumbleUpon because it would just take you to a random website based on genre. I don't think I remember that one. I think I remember that one. I loved it, and you know what? Curiously enough, it got bought out by some company who thought they could do it better, and they made it worse, and, and now you know no one wants to use it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They took out yeah, all those right. conspiracy theory pages too, curiously enough. <laughs> hmm, I wonder why they would do that. Yeah, so, but yeah, you remember Stumble Upon. Stumble Upon was a f so fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a wild ride. And the internet, a distributed technology, has been something I've always been interested in. Back in, you know, LimeWire. BitTorrent, and all of that just led up into Bitcoin, now cryptocurrencies in general, IPFS. I know that there are some dark things on the horizon, but there's some amazing tools to keep things open now, and uncensored. Now, IPFS, I mean, this is a concept I think the average person probably has no idea if we could, you know, I'm not exactly an internet tech, you know, genius. But to me, from my perspective, my limited perspective, I would say you're very close to that, Matt. So if you could give us your best definition of IPFS. Well, really, in my opinion, it's best to understand what BitTorrent is first mm. before we try to talk about IPFS. BitTorrent was the idea back in the early 2000s that to overcome bandwidth caps, what you would do is you create many connections to many people providing a file so that each one would only have to provide a small amount of bandwidth. And I, ISPs can't really limit that. They can't limit traffic on small individual connection. That way you could get a very fast, efficient download of a large file that was shared across what was called a swarm. Now, early on, what they would do is everyone who wanted to share a file would give their IP address into a database on a website. And then your torrent program would go with a code for that file and look up all the IP addresses for that file and then initiate this transfer. Well, this became a point because of piracy. This became a point in which these sites were getting shut down. So they invented what was called a distributed hash table, which was essentially a way of bootstrapping the process across the same swarm to get which one of those clients actually had the file and initiate the process of uh, transferring. So the next logical step was, well, why did we need to look for individual files? Why couldn't I just provide an entire file structure for the entire planet 
and use those hash codes to link into like a global disk. And that's IPFS, and that's why it's called interplanetary file system. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Because <laughs> I think this is the type of know-how, and, and if you have the awareness that this exists, you know, that's the first step. I, I really think that the Internet is going to remain a place for free thought, despite, you know, what country you're in right now. I mean, so many people benefit from the freedom of speech that we have in America in a country where they might not have freedom of speech because the information that they're able to access that comes from this country, you know, can... And that's what this whole, I mean... Not to go back to mainstream media topics, but that Arab Spring, and apparently now there's another Arab Spring coming. Or it's like, yeah, it, obviously, when people have access to a free flow of information, they want to change their government and, and make their communities a better, more livable place, right? And if you're living under you right. know, this kind of colonization that takes place, this backdoor colonization where they assassinate any nationalist leader in favor of a globalist leader to run these countries and like we touched right. on at the beginning you know the philippines despite having that kind of colonial force is very still decentralized and i think the landscape plays a big part of that i mean the, the islands the isolated but connected nature of the culture is very very unique and interesting and it, yeah, I mean, it almost right. reminds me of the internet in a way. You know, you're out there on this. And, and you know, there are there are people here who, because of a lack of information, are trying to get rid of these tribal structures and create a national identity. And what I think maybe the bonus here is that with this ability to communicate the problems of globalism, I think we'll see some of these people changing their minds about this. Right, and I know within our own, with our within our own situ, within our own environment, what we try to do is think inward and outward. So we build up the community that's right adjacent to us. We make sure that we have good relationships as, as good as possible with neighbors, and that we know people nationally, and then we reach out globally. And, and I am conscious of trying not to impose an outside idea that's just going to be harmful to my local environment. Right. For instance, pharmaceuticals, I'm very much against. And I, I can tell you, we spent a whole show just talking about horror stories of replacing indigenous medicines with external um, you know, first world sort of pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Allopathic medicine. Uh, Homeopathic my... versus allopathic. And yeah, Matt, I'm with you, man. I think, and that's why I love learning about the little ins and outs of the folk, you know, lore of a place and the magic of the land because I really truly believe that that's where the herbs and the land, the, the plants that you eat, directly in your own environment that's part of where their health and nutrition comes from is that interconnectedness mm -hmm. of it all and pharmaceuticals are so global and disconnected from the whole it's just disgusting that's a good thing to bring up i if you look at the official record here they don't talk about death they only talk about cases 
They don't talk about that. Mm. Well, why? Because we have a lot of sunlight. We're relatively close to the equator. Right. Which means our vitamin D levels are really high. Right. We eat abundant, uh, abundant amounts of citrus fruits or things high in vitamin C are, are really high in our diet because this place is like the Garden of Eden, practically. In fact, amongst some uh, Pentecostal Christian groups here, they really do say that this is the original Garden of Eden. Yeah, and that kind of connects some of the dots that Ari Asselin was talking about. I mean, I don't expect to get too deep into that because it is a lot of new theories that Ari is cooking up himself, mm-hmm. but I definitely encourage you to check that out. I, I know you've given me a lot of homework over the <laughs> course of us talking, so I'll serve some back to you, Matt. And I'm happy to get some from you. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, to mention a few, I, there was a, a, a channel you mentioned associated with that. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we haven't even tapped the surface of that one because they the Kasai Sion hunters talk about connections not only with the Celts, but they show these really strange artifacts found in uh, the southern island of Mindanao, which indicate there may have been Phoenicians here. There may have been Greeks here in the past. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, no, I... Whenever Magellan came, the, the natives of the Visayas made armor out of carabao horn. Out of what? I missed the, the last... Carabao horn, the, the water buffalo, carabao. Okay, okay, carabao, yeah. You know, the, yeah, the, yeah. the big, long horns, right? This is one reason the Spanish had difficulty, because carabao horn was strong enough to resist muskets. Wow. But what's interesting... On top of that is the way that they would cut the horn was similar to the way Greek armor was made. So sometime in the past, there may have been some exposure to the ancient Greeks here. Interesting. Wow. And this is... Uh, so like really a crossroads. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is definitely bringing to mind some of the things I, I spoke about with Brad Olson and, and other guests where... and. I think Birch Driver as well, but, or no, Andreas Zuris it was, and how, you know, ocean routes were the true highways of the ancient world, you know, navigating the coast, you really can, when you look at the map, you can see how easy it would be to almost get to all these places if you just knew where, you know, what coast to follow. It might take you a while, but <laughs> it's all connected via coast. Cool, cool. Huh. Yeah, let's see. Was there another point that we need to bring up? Yeah, whenever my uh, mother-in-law, my, my dearly departed, she died about three, three years ago. That's here. She died because of allopathic medicine. That's what killed her. Whenever she was, because she was like 84 when she died, and she'd been doing quite well until her doctor died. And her doctor knew how to do everything the native way. But whenever she got on statins, 
immediately, as soon as she took her first one, it's like she started acting crazy. I mean, really, first dose, she lost her mind. Wow. And they were telling us about it over the phone, and we were like, get her off of those. We, we had them read to us what medications they were giving her. I'm like, nope, no statins, don't take that. As soon as she stopped taking it, she got her mind back. Yeah. And whenever she died, that whenever she was in the hospital, the first thing they did was like, oh, she's got to take statins. And she died a few hours later, which is crazy. Yeah. Hypersensitivity to these toxins that are passed off is curative. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like here in uh, America, we're so saturated with toxins that it's like, you know, <laughs> They, they try to bandage wounds with with more toxins, you know? Like, it's just, they're not treating the real root causes. I mean, I myself... They're disguising the symptoms. Yeah. I try to stay outside as much as I can because most of my work is in front of a computer. So if I'm not balancing that time away from, you know, the electricity, I feel like it really does have an negative effect on my health i think we are light beings we exist with frequency and vibration and we need to be very careful of the subtle energies around us and that's why when we talk about the philippines it really just gets me excited because i can only imagine you know the opportunity there is still there to engage with the land in that way like you know for example yesterday i drove an hour or so to get to a place where there was no cell service because of that effect. Wow. You know? and that, it's, see, that, that, is one, that is one problem we have here. Cell phones just saturated, so there really isn't much place you can go unless you're out in the ocean and get away from itself. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, there's not much they can do for Western Mass. It doesn't seem like anybody's uh, getting cell phone service up there, at least in the parts I was. But. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, but... Well, I was in one of the most beautiful remote areas here up in the mountains. There's, it's the highest point in northern Luzon. It's called Mount Pulak. Mm. And I went there twice in the last 10 years. And I got up there, and what do they have? Smack dab practically at the peak with a cell phone tower. Oh, man. Yeah, and do they decorate them like trees yeah. over there, too? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're all over the place. And uh, I guess the only upside is I, I seriously doubt we're going to have 5G up nationwide anyway. We might have it in, say, like a business district or something like that. But nationwide, no, we're not going to have 5G anytime soon here. Mm. So those high-frequency types of transmissions are probably not going to get here for 10, 15, 20 more years. It's just too much infrastructure cost to do something like that. We are, though, getting a lot of fiber. Fiber, 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 fiber. I tell you, during the lockdown, they started rolling out fiber like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to learn how I can get an off-the-grid internet connection because I'm, I'm thinking about getting as far away from the, the 5G because I'm in the infrastructure, Matt. Like, they are, last year during the lockdown, you know, I was speaking to this uh, chick that worked at AT&T 
And I asked her about it. I'm like, you know, what's been going on at the job? And she's like, oh, well, we've been installing 5G in all these schools now that the kids are out of, you know, the lockdown. Or, you know, they're out of school for the lockdown. So, yeah, and, and you know, there's probably like eight or nine schools in my town alone. So, you know, that's one spot where you know there's 5G going on, and I'm sure everywhere in between. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely getting a little bit of wanderlust, Matt, as we're talking here about your uh, exotic locale. It's definitely very interesting, the thoughts that we you have. I, I think the thing to remember about going anywhere like here, it doesn't have to be here, it can be another developing nation, is figure out what the local... I, these are the unwritten rules. Figure out how things work. Because the written rules often contradict what actually happens in practice. And respect those rules. Because those are the ones that will get you in trouble. <laughs> if you break those, those will get you in trouble. A lot of expats come here and think that they can just, you know, do whatever they want. It doesn't really work out that way. You've got some unwritten rules. You, you really have to follow, and if you can break those, then you're going to have a you're going to have a headache. And I just let my family here. They know what the rules, what those rules are before I do. And sometimes I figure them out. Sometimes I have to be taught by them. But I would say it's true anywhere. I've talked to people in New Jersey, and they're like, "Well, you know, we can't go anywhere because of this, that, and the other." I'm like, "You know what?" I guess you might think that, but maybe it isn't quite that bad. Maybe you're imposing that restriction on yourself and you're not thinking, how can I step outside of these official guidelines and break them and, and just get away with it? My brother in Kentucky, because Kentucky has all of these lockdown things, and like he's only worn a mask once in all of it. He did all of his grocery shopping. All I did was I just order it. I order it. I go pick it up. We found other places for him to buy. I think we should be keeping our eyes open and looking at things in as many different angles as we can and trying to understand what's actually happening. And definitely don't believe what the official pronouncements are. That, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Well... With that, Matt, I think this is going to be the, the first of many. We're definitely having you back. It's getting late over here. I know it's early for you out there, but it's getting quite a little <laughs> over here. And, uh, this yeah, I saw you yawning there. there. <laughs> don't take that personally. Come on now. But, no, uh, I don't. <laughs> but that's, uh, yeah, I do, I do want to have you back on. Maybe a little, get a little more rest. I did have quite the day yesterday. But, yeah, Matt, this has well, been fun. I, I, sure, I enjoyed it, and I welcome the opportunity. And maybe next time we might actually have a, an even better setup here because we are going to be launching a podcast for uh, CompetSafe. It's going to be called The Platform. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Well... Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Folks, please go support Matt Raymer. He's on Content Safe and Deplatformed is the new podcast coming out. Matt, when's that coming out? 
first of July. The first of July. Look at that. I love it. Well, I hope you will uh, join us in the Alt Media United Cooperative with that. And uh, yeah, and I hopefully I think you know with the timing of this episode, we'll probably release it when Deplatformed is already out. So where can folks find Deplatformed? Is that going to be on the traditional podcast hosts, all the podcast apps and whatnot, or is it going to be on uh, like a video service? What are you What are your plans for it? it? It will be a video service, but we'll probably break off audio only versions. And the site is already up. If you want to go look at uh, our site, it's deplatformed.co. Awesome. And we're preparing um, our plans already with Daryl Becker. He's going to be one of my co-hosts. And uh, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be really fun and a great opportunity to reach out and network with folks like you, as well as people I haven't met yet. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I'm excited to to see where that takes you because I know Content Safe is already working with some really amazing people. And if you have a podcast out there, I definitely recommend you perk your ears up for this because Matt is definitely helping out folks in our genre. Anybody who has a concern for free speech, if you don't know what Content Safe does, I mean, they do a lot. But to sum it up, I mean, I would say it's the most secure way to back up your content if you're a content creator. So please, folks, support Matt Raymer and check out Deplatformed, deplatformed.co. And with that, folks, thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Motherfuckers, it's a beautiful day to be alive. It's Monday. You're listening to My, my family, family Thinks I'm, I'm Crazy Podcast. Dead because Mark is bananas. Host Mark Palmer. Maybe it's the intensity because your awareness increases, so you're just sort of...